Coming up this season on Two Lives. I've wasted too many years of my life focusing on what's wrong with me. What I have learned through this is that I am enough. Damn it, I'm good enough. It was tough to disappoint my mother. It was tough to watch my father feel like he failed. That was hard. So, yeah, I turned my life around in prison. It actually was very comforting to know I'm not a bad person trying to get good. I was a sick person trying to get well. All that and more in Season 9 of Two Lives. Hey, this is Julia. Hey, this is Jeremiah. Welcome to Sex Evangelicals, the podcast about the sex education the church didn't want you to have. Hosted by us, two licensed and certified sex therapists. If you're like us and you grew up in an evangelical, Mormon, or Pentecostal community, what you learned about relationships, sexuality, and gender may have deeply harmed you. Our podcast is here to help the ex-evangelical and deconstructing communities heal relationally and sexually. Whatever your story, we all have this in common. We all exist in the context of relationships. We are covering it all here, from the terrible Christian literature that still activates my eczema, debates about the inherent sinfulness of spaghetti straps, and when honeymoon sex goes terribly wrong all the way to myths about infidelity, candid conversations about erections, and everything we wish we knew before becoming sex therapists. So if you're interested in having a flourishing sexual and relational life, especially if you miss the sex education that the church didn't want you to have, welcome to Sex Evangelicals. Let's keep healing together. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I am Troy, and welcome to Season 5. Hello, Brian. And you said that you weren't going to do that after your Season 4. So well, I didn't. I did Season 5. You did Soprano from Alto. <laughs> so, well done. Maybe Season 6 will be a tenor. Yes, Maybe. So we're about to jump into an episode which we have just finished recording, actually, with Bernie Warnick. And Bernie wrote a book called Illusions of Certainty, Thoughts on Thinking. And you'll hear, you know, who Bernie is and all that sort of stuff when we get into the episode. But I guess we wanted to just have a bit of a a chat and a reflection of what is coming up. And Troy, I'm going to throw to you, what are some of your thoughts on what we've just spoken about? Well, it was interesting to listen to this because this man was never a Protestant Christian fundamentalist. But what was interesting and what came out was he was raised pretty much a Catholic fundamentalist. I mean, he talks about it being a strict Catholic household, which I think is just another way of saying fundamentalism. And he basically deconstructed and walked away in his 30s, which I'm guessing is somewhere around 50 years ago, and then moved into this idea of certainty and you know trying to understand certainty and you know he's written this book about it so i think there's a lot of similarities it's just that he's walked this path a lot earlier than we did and he's actually quite comfortable with a lot of these ideas and he's quite comfortable with sort of pushing christianity to the side and saying i i don't believe this anymore and to me i think personally that's actually really quite i don't want to say heartwarming it's quite positive to think, yeah, look at that, everyone. There's life after all this. 
and and he's no longer troubled by this. He's no longer phased by this. He's just living his life and talking about certainty, but his whole idea or the illusion of certainty, but the whole idea of this was rooted in the fact that he started because he wanted to investigate the claims of Catholicism. And so I think as you listen, that's really, really important. And that's one thing that really stood out to me. You and I have often spoken about this, that as we get older, we're less and less certain of things. And and I wonder if it's as a result of the things that keep coming across our paths, that we have more and more compelling truths. And I, I use that word uh, purposely because we see all these different bits of evidence coming before us. And there are just so many different arguments of why you can't be certain about something. And I sit really comfortably in it. I mean, I didn't sit comfortably in it when I first left fundamentalist Christianity because I had so many roots in certainty and there was everything I was so certain of. Now, because it did come away fairly slowly for me and it really did pick apart, it wasn't probably as tragic and it didn't hit me in the face that much. However, I did walk away from it going, okay, what are the things I'm certain of now? What is next? And I'm becoming more and more comfortable as I get older in knowing that probably I have no idea what's coming next and I'm okay with that. Well, Brian, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this, and we say this for you, dear listener, was because we wanted to unpack the idea of certainty. And you know, this this guy's book is called The Illusion of Certainty. And I think you and I are pretty much at that point anyway, saying, look, you can be pretty sure, but you can't be certain. And you can't be certain of almost anything. But one of the things that I've seen a lot, Brian, in our time doing this, especially moving into the deconstruction world or the, you know, the deconstruction community online, is a lot of people have not lost the craving for certainty. And I think what I've seen a lot of, and people might get a bit phased by this, and sorry if you do, but what I've seen a lot of is that people have jumped from, okay, I'm not a fundamentalist Christian anymore. Therefore, I'm just going to take the anti-fundamentalist beliefs that I come across, and whether that's you know hyper-left or hyper-right or whatever you want to call it, right? But people step out of fundamentalist Christianity and they take another set of beliefs, and they're certain about these now. And so whether that, and and I'm not going to go into any of them because I don't want us to get cancelled, right? But it's funny because, you know, cancel culture on a, you know, I guess a sort of postmodernist perspective really is just boycotting, which is what Christians do. And I sort of think that there's a lot of the same sort of behaviors going on in the deconstruction community that people take on whatever church told us not to is what I'm trying to say. And I just don't think that that's necessarily healthy because, and I'm going to say it here, I don't think church is wrong about everything. I don't believe in it. I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in everything that they say because they have any sort of authority, etc. But they're not wrong about everything. Yet you will get people, and, and I know I've done this myself, that will sort of step out into a position that they think is against the church. And it's sort of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And in that, they buy into a whole set of beliefs and become certain of those. And I don't think that's healthy. 
I agree. You become oppositionally defiant. Oppositionally defiant, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you, you know, anything that the church stood for is bullshit and I'm going to believe the opposite, which is fundamentalism. I agree. And also I think um, if we reflect a little bit on what Van Batam said in our QAnon and on episode last season. Who was a Christian, by the way. She is a Christian. Yeah, and she talked about loving people unconditionally and stuff like that, and yet she was such a wise, wonderful person. She is amazing. I love Van. Um, but that similarity that she spoke about where fundamentalist Christians and conspiracy theorists are so incredibly aligned because, again, conspiracy theorists, that's certainty. Like they will believe in the fundamentals of what they are trying to peddle and what they believe, and they are 100% certain on that because you've got to peg yourself to that certainty. So that's where they get aligned, and there's a lot of alignment between those two groups. For sure, for sure. So I wanted to do this episode because I wanted to bring someone on that was outside of the the normal gene pool that we would draw from and speak to us about certainty from a philosophical perspective. And I think that's what he does in this episode really well. I also really enjoyed the fact that he would pretty much describe us and the way we were as fundamentalists and the way some of us are now without knowing us. And I think that's quite powerful as well. So as you listen to this, Bernie does not come from a position where he is an ex-fundamentalist trying to rail against Protestant fundamentalism. He's, he's just describing what he thinks is the problem with the illusion of certainty and what he calls the, the evils of undue certainty. And it's really worth listening to what this man has to say. And so I got a lot out of this episode. He's not our usual guest at all, but I really felt he had a lot of really good things to say. Another thing I got from it is I love listening to older people. And Bernie, you're not that much older than us. You're maybe 25 years older than us. So you're not that much older. But, hey, you've got a lot more wisdom and you've, got a, you've had a lot more exposure to things. You've seen a lot of things. I do love sitting at the feet of older people because you hear so many things that you haven't thought about before. They've had the opportunity to process it. They've had the opportunity to to think about things a bit more. So I did like that. So thank you, Bernie. It's interesting that he used the word wisdom. When I was like an angry atheist and you used the word wisdom and I was like, fuck off with your wisdom. What is this church? But he used the word wisdom too. But, you know, it's it's not the way that we meant it once upon a time, although in a lot of ways it was. It was taking the, you know, the truth and applying it more in a global sense, you know, in, in ways that uh, in, in education, it's, you know, teaching transferable skills. And that's what he's what he's saying is you're taking what you know and applying it to situations that you've never seen before and you're still able to navigate those and that's that's wisdom and I thought that was really really good too and it's it's ironic isn't it that a that an elderly man comes on and talks to us about wisdom I think that's really cool oh, I love it and wisdom as you know I, I do like wisdom and, and I have liked the reactions from you in the past when you were an angry atheist and I would say things about knowledge without wisdom was a little bit shit. I use wisdom a lot in my life um, in terms of in language because particularly in the field I'm in, we, we talk about practice wisdom. So it's not just knowing the shit, but it's knowing how to do it and how to execute properly. So I love wisdom and I can see that you have embraced wisdom too. Well, you have a grey beard, Dumbledore, so, you know, it's, it's par for the course, isn't it? 
I have such a grey beard and it's gone far, far greyer just in the last six months. I travel, We travelled with all our kids last year and uh, my daughter's bought us this gift, which was basically a photo of all of us, which was transposed into a bit of a cartoony type shot and it's awesome and they put it on canvas and hung it up. But I've got this grey beard and I looked at it and I went, what the fuck, who is this? It's me. Yeah, it's John Smith from the God Squad. That's who it is. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. All right, mate. So let's dive into this episode. Let's hear what Bernie has to say about the illusion of certainty. And um, I think there's a lot to get from this. Let's dive in. Today, we've got Bernie Warnick. Bernie hails from Brisbane. He's had a long legal career as a solicitor, an independent barrister, but also 19 years as a judge of the Trial Division and later the Appeal Division of the Family Court of Australia before Bernie retired in 2010. Uh, Bernie developed a deep interest in the reasoning process him, uh, itself, sorry, and when he retired, it was with the intention of pursuing that interest. And Bernie's researched the works of neurobiologists, cognitive scientists, philosophers, linguists, and lots of other thinkers over 10 years, which culminated in a book which we want to have a conversation about today, and it's called Illusions of Certainty, Thoughts on Thinking. And this really explores our obsessions with certainty and truth. And that's certainly something that Troy and I have, I guess we've wrestled with coming out of a world of fundamentalism. What is certainty and what can we be certain of going forward? It's always a tricky space. But I want to welcome you, Bernie, to the podcast. Welcome, Bernie. Thank, thank you, Brian and Troy. Pleased to be here. Yeah, no, we're really happy to, to have you here. And we're happy to uh, talk to you about this book, but also I think some of the, the deeper stuff in it. But before we do, tell us a little bit about you. I mean, I gave a little bit of a two-second intro of you, but who's Bernie, both personally and professionally? As you can see, I'm, I'm an old man. I like to think that uh, that means I've had plenty of experience of life and experience of being human and uh, my thoughts about uh, what that means. I was raised uh, in a loving family, but a strictly Catholic one. I went to a Catholic school for almost all my schooling. I married at 23. My wife and I had three children, but I separated from my wife when I was after about 14 years. Some years later, I remarried and remain so. I have three grandchildren, two granddaughters and a, uh, who are adult and uh, a grandson who's nine. Uh, I've um, played a lot of sport in my life. I remain active. I've uh, travelled a lot and read a lot. Professionally, I became an articled law clerk, was in the law for, uh, as you described, Brian. But of some importance to my participation here today I became involved with an American professor, James Raymond, a professor of English, in uh, teaching how to write reasons for judgment. Professor Raymond was very fond of saying that with their words, judges created reality for people to live in. That struck quite a note with me and got me thinking, we create worlds uh, using language. So that uh, was later to lead me to thinking about a number of uh, aspects of the reasoning process. So when you say, Bernie, before, I think it was it um, findings of or reasons or reasons of findings, what was it you said before? 
writing of reasons for judgment, yeah, or, or in short, judgments. So what, what's that involved? I mean, obviously you preside over a, a case and then there's, there's findings. Uh, I, so it's not something that you just, at the bench, you pass down your findings. There's something behind that. Is there a bit of a process of thinking and rationalising? Very much so, depending on the case, of course. Um, some judges deliver a lot of uh, oral judgments very soon after the end of a trial or at the very end of a trial. But probably more judgments than not are delivered after a period of deliberation. Of course, it's compulsory in our courts, our system of justice, to give reasons for judgment. Were you thinking of anything in particular, Brian? Or no, just what's the process like? What is it that you've you've got to go through? Is have you got to build a bit of a case of evidence as to why you're passing down a particular judgment? Each counsel, of course, makes submissions arguing their case. You have to give reasons for deciding the way you do. That generally involves findings of fact and identification of the relevant legal principles and applying those principles to uh, the facts, which gives you the result. So, Bernie, tell us, how did all this lead you to an interest in the idea of certainty and eventually even writing a book on the illusions of certainty? Is it that you don't believe certainty is attainable? Is that why you called it the illusions of certainty? Yes, uh, it is. But I didn't start out with a belief about that. Uh, As Brian indicated, I retired when I was 62. None of my male relatives had lived to a particularly ripe age, so I wondered how many years I might have left. I really felt a need to figure a few things out. One of them was I abandoned Catholicism in my 30s, but it wasn't after any intellectual exercise It was because I couldn't live up to the expectations of Catholicism. I'd always felt a need to intellectually examine Catholicism and, more broadly, belief in God. I also was quite ignorant about matters like formal logic and philosophy. I'd I'd never really read either. Funnily enough, to be a lawyer when I was doing law, to be any of the other things a lawyer might become, a barrister, a judge, etc. You didn't have to study logic at all. Uh, And I hadn't studied logic. And yet here I was uh, speaking daily about what is logical and what is not during my legal career. There were these gaps in my life. I started out by reading a lot about religion, completed what I wanted to complete. I then read a lot of philosophy then five, six books, I don't know how many I read, uh, about formal logic. Uh, And I should say, I tend, when I want to um, reason my way through something, to write things down. So I was writing notes on books and my own thoughts at the time. And I came to the view, uh, first of all, that logic had a very limited application, uh, formal logic in particular, to Uh, much of the decision-making that we needed to make. Also, that really philosophy was uh, a lot of people putting forward very personal or subjective ideas and giving full vent to their uh, biases and preconceptions. So it was rather bold of me, I suppose, to form those views when I wasn't uh, educated in philosophy or, or logic. But the more I read, the more I became convinced. And it was then that I turned to uh, 
neurobiology and cognitive science and discovered that people were right onto this. The, the experts were all saying, we don't reason objectively and logically. That led to me calling the book Illusions of Certainty. Most questions are not amenable in their answers to logical objectivity. What do you mean by that, Bernie? First of all, the term subjectivity really refers to the emotions, the feelings that we have, preconceptions, whether they're from experience in a general sense or something particular that we've thought for ourselves, but on a previous occasion. So many of our deeper subjectivities are almost unconscious, as we know. When we reason, subjectivity almost always emerges in our process at the very beginning. Neurobiologists say that they've done numerous brain scans of people involved in making decisions. And at the beginning of of a question, if you have an emotion that's relevant to that, that is touched by the, the question and the issue, that's what arises in your thinking process at the beginning. Often a subjective view, if it's a personal question, it is a relevant thing to be taken into account. But it's antithetical to the traditional thought about objectivity and logicality. Bernie, let me ask you something, and I'm going to go a little bit off script here. I want to know, do you think that certainty is something that can actually be reached in terms of the the human can feel certain while saying from an objective perspective, it's really not something that can be reached? Is that that what I'm hearing you say? Uh, Pretty much. um, in, In the book, I look at the concept of truth, which is obviously something related to certainty and connected with certainty. And I run through the subject matters. Now, in the scientific world, we might talk about truths. Scientists themselves don't talk about truths. They realise that their knowledge is limited to what the, the time, the circumstances allow There have been constant examples of changes in theories and understandings as the tools that science uses improve and as knowledge is built upon. So even scientists don't talk about truth. But in the scientific world, we're dealing with subject matter which is material often. If it's not, it's concepts like space, time, etc. We can do experiments We can do experiments designed to test, designed to have the proposition fail. And then there's endless peer review, of course. With concepts that are invented by language, that's not possible for a number of reasons. They are invented by language. They're not in the material world. Words are ambiguous. Um, I made a list just of a few words for today's purposes. And when I say they're ambiguous, we can't determine their reach, what they include, what they exclude, what is pornographic, what is immoral, treachery, what is civil or improper or cheating, what is dishonourable, sin, love, equality. And thousands of other concepts cannot be agreed upon by everyone as to what is included and excluded. 
These things are in our head. They don't exist outside our head. And we each have a slightly different notion of what they cover. So the subject matter is radically different when we're talking about values, whether we're talking about uh, not so much God, because others might claim that that's a, a real thing, but not when we're talking about values and concepts, all types of concepts. So if we can't determine the reach of something, then it's likely that we can't be certain about anything which involves reasoning from that value or concept. Bernie, let me ask you a question because I've heard people say the same thing or similar things about history and the truth of history because events that have happened in the past, how do we recreate those or you know repeat those to test their validity? Science can't be used in the same way. And, and we've had someone on the podcast to talk to us about it's more about probabilities than about truth or about certainty. Yeah. Well, again, in the book, I examine scientific fact. I mention, without discussing in great detail, historical fact. A lot of historical fact, I think we're entitled to say, is certain. But again, most things are subject to interpretation by the historian. Again, some new piece of evidence might be found. And we need to place our faith in scientific and historical fact. But we should never be blind that these are not certain things. They are the best we can do at the time. And we act upon them because we've got to act or we, we, we sit and do nothing. Down the descending scale, scientific fact is probably entitled to the most degree of probability. Historical fact, perhaps likewise. But then when we get to propositions and principles and morality, ethics, there is nothing that is inarguable. Everything has a contrary proposition. And that's in particular where I'm focused. Because funnily enough, the things that we get excited about aren't science and aren't history. They are values. That's what most people argue about, most people get upset about, and most people have subjective uh, feelings about. People don't get that excited or emotional, I should say, about history and science. But boy, do they get emotional about morality and behaviour. Uh, as we all know. Do you think, Bernie, that's because morals, values, they're sort of, they're a bit of social glue. They're the things that bring groups of people together and they have this shared identity. So it's something that they really leverage and for them there's a, a greater importance that they believe in those things together to be part of a tribe? A absolutely. It, but the word feelings is a significant word which you use because they're subjective feelings. It, 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 we feel subjectively. Thoughts, it, it, subjectivities and emotions are part of the reasoning process, as I said, towards the very beginning. They're the first part that is triggered. But yes, they are still feelings. And if we could recognise that and stop thinking that we can determine truths in such matters and recognise that they're just really full of subjectivities, 
It's still a type of reasoning. I don't mean to belittle subjectivity. Uh, in fact, there's a fair bit of uh, neurobiologists often think that uh, better decisions are made if we include an emotional content, e- even by judges. But if, if we recognise that, then we, we stop being certain about things, or, or we ought to, logically, if I may use that term. So, Bernie, what is it that humans get from certainty? Why is it that we crave it? What are, what, what are we looking for? What do we, what do we need? What are we grasping for when we say we need to be certain about things? Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, again, I think it just goes back to there's an emotional need. It's not an intellectual need. And that's why fundamentalists aren't, generally speaking, amenable to objective reasoning or logical reasoning. Or I prefer the term rational to logical because rational means you just have a reason for it. You consider things coherently rather than logically, which is tainted by, I think, the deficiencies of formal logic. But if we're rational, and that's the best we can be, um, if we're rational, we won't be certain of any uh, thing such as religion. But w- there is nonetheless uh, a subjective need for certainty, and it's comforting to be certain of things. And it does help societies cohere. Uh, it, it's a glue for societies. But I don't want to sort of give the impression that I say subjectivity is rubbish or rubbish thinking. What I want to say is it is subjectivity that drives certainty. Rationality doesn't drive feelings of certainty. Subjective feelings and emotions, that's what drives certainty. Um, And it does have benefits, which we've just mentioned. And, And historically, of course, in the West, where we grew up with certainty because Uh, In medieval times, uh, the Catholic Church was so dominant uh, and its dictates were certain. And then at the age of reason in the, uh, say, the 17th century uh, for a couple of centuries afterwards, uh, the uh, idea of empirical scientific reasoning replacing the um, tenets of the church, reason took over as the new sort of religion. And uh, people thought reason could achieve all of the certainties about everything, for example, that religion taught. Um, So that was a myth. We need to understand that we're organic beings. We, We don't think as we would like to think. We don't think as, in fact, uh, the traditional view. Reason is not all it was cracked up to be. It's a human uh, evolutionary um, facility to uh, help us survive, the survival instinct. But its purpose, it's not a computer, its purpose wasn't to always give the the one output with a particular input. In a postmodern world, postmodernity has very much gone down the track of going, well, there's many truths and your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And obviously finding a place for that subjectivity where it says there can be many truths and they can coexist at the same time. 
Do you think that's a push against certainty or do you think it's trying to work to find a certainty of its own? Uh, I don't think that there's a certain answer to that. What I think is that we're, we're in a transitional stage. There's a reaction to the idea of illusions of certainty. There's a... That's partly a reaction, I think, partly driven, no doubt, by the desire for certainty. But it's also endeavouring, I think, to preserve our way of life. And people see their life being, their way of life being eroded by the proposition that, uh, propositions such as my basic proposition, they see it eroding their way of life. Um, nonetheless, as I've said, cognitive science and neurobiology are showing that we are not perfect reasoning systems. And for other reasons, such as the uh, ambiguity involved in values and principles, we, can't, we just can't have certainty. We can still, though, for ourselves, um, think hard and think honestly and decide that we have firm values. I wouldn't suggest that we shouldn't do that. But for those who want certainty in the face of all the evidence, I think they are deluding themselves. As you're talking, I was thinking about back at the start of this interview where we started speaking about reasons for judgment. How do you pull together, and I'm a bit stuck on this, how do you pull together a reason for judgment? Because aren't you pulling on subjectivity? I mean, there's only the facts that you've got before you, which have been brought to you by other people, which undoubtedly there's a, a level of subjectivity in the way that they present those. Obviously, they're, they're looking for an outcome that favours them. So they bring you an evidence which is tainted with subjectivity You've then got to put a filter of objectivity across that and then contextualise that and deliver a reason for judgment. That must be incredibly difficult. But how, how do you do that? How do you wrestle with all those facts? And, and given the fact that what you have before you is all that you can draw from to pull that together, and, and I'm using the example that you've got there, but this could be an example in any part of anybody's lives. We've only got before us what has been brought to us and none of it can be claimed to be perfectly objective. So how do we actually filter that information? How do we successfully run our bullshit detector across it to work out what is the most useful and what is the most truthful, for lack of a better word? Of course, you seem to broaden your question towards the end to apply to um, questions arising outside the law. Uh, but in, in terms of um, the law, of course, and I should say, again, within the law, it varies. Now, a murder case is supposedly strict rules of evidence, no, no hearsay, etc., eyewitnesses, scientific evidence to support a finding of fact. And then the law uh, is codified often uh, and is very clear. So if you struck Bill with the uh, intention of um, 
killing him or grievous bodily harm and the blow killed him, then that's murder. So what I call in, in, in the book closed systems. Within closed systems, objective logic can work. Um, but even in family law, for example, that was a different creature altogether. There, there was undoubted subjectivity in judgments. Um, but then again, in relation to the broadening of your question, we go back to the type of issues that really concern us, morals, ethics, etc. And we can see, I hope, where you simply don't get uh, the application of logic to propositions in that sphere that can lead you to certainty. Bernie, there used to be a saying back in our church days that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Mm. And there was a certainty that people peddled. Yes. Why do you think people are so attracted to the certainty that contexts like fundamentalist Christianity presents? Mm. Well, again, I, I, I can only repeat myself, really, simply because there is a need. I think I had a need to believe. I, I as I say, was raised in a strict Catholic family, and I don't think I could uh, have disbelieved the teachings until probably in my 30s. I had a need to comply to see the world as I'd been told the world was. Our, our culture and upbringing is such a powerful force in teaching us to look at the world in a particular way that few people purely intellectually can see through that. Some people can, but few people intellectually see through that. You have to have things happen in life which make you look back and think, oh, that's a bit different to the way I was told. It doesn't seem bad. Religion, I think, could be regarded as an overdose, religious belief, could be regarded as an overdose of subjectivity. And it's an overdose that prob probably arises from cultural and family upbringings or, or being a member of a cult or something like that. It's funny listening to you, Bernie, because in what we call the deconstruction movement, which is where people are moving away from, from their religions and questioning their religions, there's very much a a reaction from within the church where people are saying, oh, you've just been hurt, oh, you've just had these negative experiences, and they throw subjectivity at us. And then you've got the other side where people are saying, oh, no, I you know, measured all the claims of Christianity and, and saw it wasn't true. But my experience is it's oftentimes a combination of both, that people will either be triggered by the theological or philosophical or historical questions about the faith and then bring their emotion to that, or they're triggered by emotional experiences of being hurt or damaged or or challenged, whatever that is, and then they bring an attempt to rationalize the beliefs, et cetera. It seems to be a mix of both. Mm. And I and I hear you saying that we can't think that we are ever free of our subjectivity. That's exactly right. I don't know if either of you have read a book called Educated by a woman, Tara Westover. Uh, you've read it? Yeah. And that, that's, that's a terrific, I think, a powerful example of the grip uh, that a religious, up, a cult-like upbringing uh, 
the grip that it can have on obviously a very intelligent woman. And even at the end, uh, Troy, uh, of the book, uh, she's saying, having intellectually shredded the beliefs, if you like, she's still speaking about the tug, the the sort of guilt that she feels for abandoning her family, so to speak, who still believe. And that's the way we are. There's, there's not, there's no answer to it. It's that's the way we are. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Like we we often talk about our experience in the fundamentalist Christian scene, where that scene quite often works very, very, very hard to make sure that your subjectivity is controlled in many ways that you have services at a church on the weekends. During the week, you're locked into a system which says, oh, you should all get together and pray and have a Bible study. So you join a Bible study group. You go to a youth group and you go to other social groups. So all of a sudden, you're within a system that's informing you in the way that the system needs to inform you to make sure that you've got that confirmation bias just constantly kicking in. And you're believing that you are, well, potentially you're believing that you're objectively um, measuring things, but the reality is your objectivity is so tainted because it's controlled. So it's really interesting that people feel a freedom. And that's something that that I've certainly experienced through education myself is that was the thing that helped me to start asking the questions. And they were questions that I know could not be answered quite often by those around me who were still within that system because they had no idea. They had no idea that this stuff existed and quite often there's a blanket term of, hey, it's evil. Like, don't don't look at that. Just, you know, turn your eyes to God, pray and whatever and, and get on with it. Just get away from the evils of the world. It was, it was often touted. So you would see that quite often. Yes, it's, it's classical indoctrination. And, and Troy mentioned something before um, the uh, proposition that if you question, you're being impudent, you're embarrassing God in some way uh, because you're doubting God. A classic catch-22, isn't it? (laughs) If you can't question uh, because you're doubting God, then they've got you for life uh, if if you maintain that proposition. I I formed the view after reading, particularly Ninny and Steve, uh, Stephen's book on the, the world's religions, um, that uh, there's not not much difference between the orthodox Catholicism that I experienced and cult behaviour. I don't see any real distinguishing features. Speaking of evils, you have a whole chapter on what you call the evils of undue certainty. Yeah. Can you tell us what you mean by that? And and then also, is is are we guilty of that as fundamentalist Christians? Are we guilty of that now? Well, um, we can be guilty of it uh, without being a fundamentalist Christian, I think, certainly. Um, But uh, I probably shouldn't uh, have used the uh, words evils in retrospect, particularly with uh, uh, Christians or ex-Christians, because the word evil has certain connotations. Uh, I probably should have just called it the downsides of um, undue certainty or something like that. But uh, as to the downsides of undue certainty uh, and all the evils. Um, The first, of course, is intolerance. Fundamentalists of any nature are never tolerant 
of contrary views to their own. Uh, and, and they're not, as I said earlier, I think, they're not intellectually capable, generally speaking, of um, being persuaded out of their fundamentalism because fundamentalism, as I, I repeat, is an overdose of subjectivity. They, they don't just know they're right. They, they feel they're absolutely certain that, that they're right. So the uh, converse of the fundamentalist intolerance uh, bind is that um, if you allow yourself to live without certainty in these matters that we're talking about, then you tend to be tolerant. And Hume, uh, the philosopher David Hume, said it quite beautifully in the late 1600s, I think, um, and he spoke of living without certainty and said we should just bravely try to do the best we can and that uh, in those circumstances we would be tolerant of the views of others. So uh, tolerance and intolerance absolutely connected with fundamentalism and uh, with a lack of certainty, the one deriving from the other. Uh, the other thing is about um, a downside of undue certainty. It sets us off in our reasoning in the wrong direction. Um, now, of course, Nazism, uh, communism under Mao, uh, are classic examples of fundamentalist propositions gone crazy. The uh, superiority of the uh, Aryan race leading to um, the persecution of all sorts of people, including Jews, or Mao, the uh, atrocities caused by his trying to implement economic uh, reforms which were fundamentalist in nature. E even human rights, for example, which is more current in the West, the claim that human beings are born with rights is inaccurate. There's no evidence that we're actually born with rights. No evidence of any nature, scientific, medical, uh, observational, empirical. So we're not actually born with human rights. Some of us have human rights because we live in countries which have the rule of law and are democracies. But many of us, in fact, don't have human rights uh, in the world as we know. What happens when one of those countries breaches a human right? The West rushes to punish them as if human rights existed there, which, of course, that's what is claimed by the ideology of human rights. Whereas if we concentrated on changing the narrative or the, the circumstances of those countries, we might have much more success in bringing them to human rights, which I, I'm not against human rights. I think it's a lovely value. But to say that we are born with them, everyone in the world is born with them, is uh, fundamentalism. So any fundamentalist thinking drives people to actions which are unhelpful and which, generally speaking, uh, aren't compassionate or aren't tolerant. Uh, they, um, they lack reality or insight. The stuff we've spoken about here, Bernie, there's so many 
different factors, I guess, that can come into our heads, you know, our logical thinking, the external factors, also self, so that subjectivity, objectivity, everything being mixed up. How do we determine what the voices are that we listen to that can reliably inform our thinking? Well, uh, my response would be rely on yourself. Teach yourself. Rely on yourself. What I'm talking about isn't easy. It's a process of reasoning which draws from many sources and requires discipline. Uh, For example, um, it requires discipline to recognise what we don't know about the topic uh, or the issue. And generally speaking, people come to views on very little information and they they become very convinced of their views. Uh, We've got to work at retraining ourselves to think differently to the way we traditionally have. As to uh, the point of your question, what would you say that was, Brian, to... uh, But how do we actually work out? Who do we listen to? What what reliably informs our thinking? Well, there's no good answer. Pragmatic people, I think, are valuable. Pragmatic people don't just work with principles and logicality. Pragmatic people always think about the consequences of their action, what derives from this view which will inform your action. What are the consequences of the action? That's something that fundamentalists don't do. Fundamentalists say, this is the proposition, this is the logical result of that proposition, therefore this is what we do. That's what led the Nazis to the uh, Auschwitz and what have you. Had they had one ounce of reflection or compassion, they never would have done that. So we need to not just think, but in this example, it's a good example of not just uh, having logicality, but it's a good example of involving our emotions and our human emotions, uh, such as compassion. Um, Wisdom is an interesting concept. We could say we listen to wise people. They're not easy to identify, but they tend to be balanced people. They tend not to speak in fundamentalist terms. They tend to um and ah and consider all the arguments and all the possible results and conclusions. And wisdom is not just knowledge. It's much more than knowledge. It's understanding the knowledge and putting it in a context, the global, if you like, context of an action or behaviour. So wise people and pragmatic people are useful people. But there's no escaping just training ourselves to think in a way which recognises all the possibilities, recognises the ambiguity of most of the words we use in relation to values and concepts, all the things that I've spoken about. That's hard thinking. That's not the way we're used to doing it. But if you look at what... uh, the cognitive scientists say about the way we reason. Um, And they've examined experts uh, in in their behaviour, how they act a bit on experience, how they use a bit of judgement, a bit of guesswork, educated guesswork, etc. All of this goes into making a decision to do this operation or to do whatever. So 
it is hard work, but um, we should do it because it's better than living with delusions of certainty. I've got one last question for you, Bernie, before we wrap. And if you don't mind telling us, what was the outcome of your study of the claims of Catholicism? Where did you end up? Um, I I ended up thinking that uh, how did I ever believe in God? Um, Intellectual arguments for God make sense, if you like. Um, The idea that there's such order in the world or in the universe that there must have been a creator, that makes some sense, I think, to me. Um, And there are some arguments related to concept which I don't quite understand, some some philosophical arguments talking about perfection is possible, uh, therefore there must be something perfect and uh, therefore this must be God. Yeah, that leaves me uh, struggling a bit. But um, so you, you can get intellectual arguments for God, but none of them entitle you to be certain that there's a God. And at the best to me, it's to say a God is possible. But what really got me was the next stage. If you believed there was somebody who created the universe, what could lead you to believe that that God was watching you, was concerned with your behaviour, and there would be consequences uh, if you did or didn't do it? That, to me, is an impossible leap to make. And my thinking was something like that, which led me to be well satisfied to be an atheist, Um, I mean, I I could have been agnostic, but to me, the proposition that uh, little Bernie Warnock was of interest to a divine creature was uh, too unrealistic to accept. Do you think um, atheism is too much of a certainty, though, Bernie, just challenging your own thinking, uh, or is agnosticism more open? Agnosticism is, I think, a more defensible position. I'm satisfied to be an atheist, but I I wouldn't say, and I have a a number of friends, as most of us would, who've had different uh, experiences with um, Christianity and fundamentalism. I I have a friend who, I've had several friends, uh, a couple of whom have died, who've been agnostics. I wouldn't seek to argue with them because I, I... I don't believe that that's an unreasonable view. But personally, I don't have a shred of belief, really. But I do acknowledge the arguments for agnosticism and possibility, yeah. No, and and that is okay. I guess I just wanted to to say that, to stir a little bit. But look, I, I think one thing that Troy and I often speak about is the older we get, the less certain we get about things. So it's really interesting. And and I think that is very much drawing on our conversation today is people might have wanted answers from our conversation today, but they're not going to get them. Uh, What they're going to get is you've got to wrestle with things. You've got to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. And I think that's really important, but it's also a really, really difficult space to sit particularly in such an age of misinformation and disinformation. It's it's rife with the accessibility of that through the internet and through many different social media channels. I think it's a real challenge for us as a society. How do we actually think about thinking? How do we determine which bits of this and the many truths that are out there are we going to let in? 
and how are we going to let them in and what do we do with that and what uh, I guess what conclusions do we draw from it and how do we keep wrestling with it because truth is forever changing as more evidence comes to light and I think that's one thing for me is I've stopped pegging certainty in a place where I've hit a destination and I'm going okay I'm, I'm at this waypoint I don't know what's next, but what I have now has got me to where I am and I'm certain that it's not the destination because there's going to be more and more information that comes to light. So thank you, Bernie, for for coming on and chatting with us. I want to remind people if they want to buy Bernie's book, you can get online and it is Illusions of Certainty, Thoughts on Thinking. And I think it's it's a book which Bernie was kind enough to send to us and when I read some chapters, I had to go back and reread, and then I had to go reread. So it was several times of trying to soak it in and process. And then at the end of it, no, you know, I had to just wrestle with the fact that there wasn't any certainty. And I, I think it's a difficult place to be. But I just want to thank you again. I know Troy and I have certainly appreciated the conversation. And is there any Bernie wisdom that you would, would like to leave us with as we uh, finish today's episode? No, I've run out, actually, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's nothing There's nothing that could sound wise that I haven't said already. But So um, yeah, I'll just leave it at what I've said and, and hope that it's of some assistance to somebody. Thank you again, Bernie. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Troy, I've enjoyed the experience. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to join our listener community on Facebook, and we're also on Instagram, X, and Reddit. Check out our merch on Redbubble. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and all kinds of great exvangelical stuff that you can wear proudly. All proceeds go to building and promoting the podcast. We want to give a huge shout out to our Patreon supporters. Subscribers get a range of benefits, including free merch, early access to episodes, access to our exclusive subscribers group, and monthly bonus content. Again, all proceeds of this go to the running and promotion costs of the podcast. A special thanks to Arva, who manages our social strategy, and also to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group, and also to Bree, who puts out our monthly newsletter on Substack. All of our episodes are transcribed by Leanne to increase accessibility. The show is produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller. The sound engineering for this episode was done by Jonathan O'Brien. I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist is available wherever you find your podcasts. Again, you can find all our links in our link tree in the show notes. Or why don't you pop across to our website at www.iwasateenagefundamentalist.com.